We, uh, I was away last week, Steve, Steve spoke for me, and if he was here, um, he, he taught you guys a real important biblical principle, right? And I, it sounds simple, but it's not. Paul, um, the Apostle Paul, some of you might call him Saint Paul, maybe if you're from other faith traditions. Um, Paul himself would probably say to you, I ain't no saint, based on maybe some of his history. But, uh, but Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament in letter form to various churches, he's writing this church in a city called Colossae. Um, where it's in modern-day Turkey today, about 100 miles from another church that he would later write uh, about called Laodicea. Um, this letter, in fact, would go on to be read in the church uh, of Laodicea. And Paul is addressing this church. He's in jail himself. Uh, he's a prisoner in Rome. And he's writing to this church in Colossae because of something uh, that's going on there. He's become aware of a, a real potential threat to that church. Essentially, what had happened is some good teachers, um, by good I mean, you know, they sounded really well and what they, they taught seemed to make a lot of sense. They had come into the city and they were speaking to the believers and they were leading them to believe things uh, that sounded good, but Paul ultimately says were heretical. Now, why, why would we, uh, 2,000 years later, care about this stuff? Well, what I would say to you is that uh, there was essentially three lies that were getting taught to that church in Colossae that Paul was concerned about, and I would argue that those same three lies are getting told to us every day. They get told to our church. Sometimes they get told by our church, right? We, we mess up, and we buy into these lies ourselves, and we can, pro we can be guilty of propagating them. And it leads us away from Christ, from Jesus Christ. And so if you were here Paul, last week, what Steve was trying to get across was maybe the, the most basic of, of theological truths, which is, has to do with the supremacy of Christ. What does that mean? That, you know, let me break it down. Let me take the Greek here and parse it for you. That means that Christ is super. That was a funny joke there. <laughs> See, that means that there is nothing higher or greater or more important or that can be added to Jesus and his work. The supremacy, the overarching supremacy of Christ. And Paul says this is a really big deal because if you understand it, you're going to be able to fend off lies that get told to believers all the time. And he says there's three that I'm really worried about that are getting propagated in this church in Colossae. The first was that, that people had come into town, they said, this is great about this thing you got going with Jesus, and I love that you're meeting together, and this whole born-again thing sounds good, I like that too, but there's something more. Because, see, I'm a real, I, these teachers would say, we're really spiritual guys, and what we've had is experiences, See, you just believe, but you haven't had an experience, a supernatural experience. But we, because we're more spiritual than you, we have been communing with angels. We've been in the presence of angels. And we can teach you how to have these experiences because you're not really a believer. You're not really a follower of Christ until you have had these same experiences. Now, there are large swaths of Christianity today that still propagate that same message which is you're not fully a follower of Christ until you've been able to demonstrate certain specific supernatural characteristics. Okay? There's a second lie that, that kind of got told in Colossae where Paul said, no, 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 this, this is raising up things that, that are, are bigger. What they did was, Jesus is great, but there's a lot of other kind of figures out there which are also worthy of your worship. There are things like angels or, or saints or heroes of the faith. 
And see, it's not, Jesus is not really your only intercessor. He's not really the only thing between you and God. There's lots of things. And so you could actually, you don't really have to necessarily hold up Jesus. You could hold up other things. You could come to other things. They're just, it's not that Christ, Christ, I'm not, I'm not diminishing his importance, they would say, but there's other people and other ways to approach God and get what you're looking for. And so you guys know there's, there's large swaths of Christian faith that hold up other, other things worthy than Jesus, uh, worthy of our worship. And it was this third lie. And this is a profound lie because this one makes sense to us the most. This is one we feel, which is, hey, this Jesus thing, we're into that too. We believe that. We believe he died. We believe he resurrected. But listen, you can't, it's not just about believing that. There's also this list of things that you must do and that you've got to stop doing in order that you might come to God, in order that you might in, in, inherit eternal life now and in the future. It's not just Jesus. It's Jesus and do certain things. Stop doing other things. Now, that's the way I was introduced to Christianity, Right? That was, that was the way it was told me. Okay, you want to follow Christ? Okay, what do I do now? Well, nobody said, worship him with all your heart, soul, mind, you know, love him. It was all about, okay, well, here's all the things that you need to be for, and here's all the things you need to be against. Here's the way you should vote. Here are, you know, here are uh, various um, bumper stickers you should apply to your car, and uh, certain radio stations you should listen to, and certain radio stations you should stop listening to. And so this is what we do in our club. Um, and so there's this behavioral modification thing that went on. And Paul saw that as a threat. So he spends the first half of the book, the first chapters, talking about this centrality of Christ. Don't add anything with it to him. If you get this, when folks knock on your doors at home and they want to come in and talk to you about their faith, you'll be able to start to discern. You'll be able to start to hear, oh, wait a minute. They're talking about adding something to Jesus. Right, Because it sounds good, but they're talking about adding something to him. They're, they're, they're equating others with him. All right? So this is still going on in our world today. Now, let me, let me show you why this is a big issue for Paul. We're going to enter into the story, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He's trying to raise Christ in our minds. He says, look, the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know who God is, what God looks like, you need no, do nothing more than look at Jesus Christ. He is the full revelation of God. There is not Jesus and then God is like greater or better. He is the full representation of the God, of the Godhead. It's all there. And Paul goes on. He's the firstborn over all creation. For in him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible. Jesus was responsible for the creation of all things, stuff you don't even see or know exists, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. They've all been created through him, and they've all been created for him. You realize that all this stuff wasn't made for you, right? It was made by him for him. And he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have, say it with me, supremacy. Nothing higher, nothing grander, nothing need be added to it. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness, all of God's fullness dwelt in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The supremacy of Christ, if you get this, if you get this, this will help you understand our faith and other faiths very clearly and distinctly. Now, Paul says, so then, because this is true, because Christ is supreme over all things, just as you received him as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. See to it that nobody takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy 
which depend on human tradition, the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. You don't have to do anything else. Now he gets specific. He says, listen, church, here's what good intention people are likely to tell you. He says, therefore, because you believe this, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or by what you drink with regard to religious festivals, a new moon celebration, a Sabbath day. See, there was all kinds of law they were bringing into this saying, yes, 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 Jesus is great, but you, you, gotta, you can't eat this kind of food and you can't eat this kind of food and you have to celebrate certain days. And, and for example, okay, I grew up, I didn't grow up in a, in a Christian house. We went to church on, on Easter and Thanksgiving, right? Or Thanksgiving, Easter and Christmas. Um, so here's what was in my family, though. It's kind of funny. Um, we were brought up, and it was very steeped in us. You do not eat meat on Good Friday. Who, who was brought up in that tradition, right? Does anybody know why we should not eat meat on Good Friday? One in the back. Two. Here's the, what does the Bible say about eating meat on Good Friday? <laughs> Nothing. Okay. Uh, I could go into the history of where that comes from, okay? But, but my mother was, uh, was, is a wonderful woman and, and, and loved God, and that's what she had been taught. So it was taught to me, don't eat meat on Good Friday. And when I started becoming a believer, I started going, where is this coming from? This is kind of strange, right? It doesn't seem to mix in with this. This seems to be somebody requiring me to do something, to add something to what's already been done. So I remember one time, just to flaunt my freedom, which, by the way, is not a good thing. You do not do that. But to flaunt my freedom in Christ, I ate a big hamburger on Good Friday right in front of her. And my poor mother looked at me as if my soul was now destined for hell, right? What have I done? Look who I raised. This is pagan, you know? And, and so where does this come from? Well you, know, well, you know, John, Jesus sacrificed for us on Good Friday, so we should sacrifice for him. I'm going, boy, that, bal- that seems slightly out of balance, right? Like a hamburger um, for a day. Um, so so these things, right, religion creeps in on all of us. Good, it's good intentioned and it's goodwill. Paul says, listen, this is going to sound right. It's going to make sense because there's something in us. We just want the law. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me how to get there. And Paul is saying, is there's one way to get there. His name is Jesus Christ. He's above all things. And if you'd follow him and put your faith in him, that's all you need. So he goes on, he goes, look, and all these things are a shadow of things that are to come. The reality is found in Christ. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility, well, you know, I don't eat meat on Good Friday. Um, Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. So, and by the way, I'm not beating up any kind of religion here. I'm, we all, every religion does this, right? We, we all do it. So this is, this is not a picking on any kind of religion. It's just Paul saying these are the things that get steeped up around Christ. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility or, or the worship of angels, the worship of things other than God, disqualify you. Such a person has gone into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with their idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body is supported and grows together by its ligaments and sinews, um, grows as God causes it to grow. He goes on. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not touch. Do not, excuse me, do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. 
These rules, now how many of you, was anybody else introduced to Christianity like this? This was my thing, right? Don't do these things, stop doing those things. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. I love this. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. It seems, you know, you know we know the guy that follows all the rules and we go, mm, boy, that seems really wise, right? It seems like I should have to do something for God rather than just believe he says these things have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, with their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack, listen church, they lack any, what kind of value? Some value? They lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now get this, this is, I, you need to understand how revolutionary this is in the history of religious teachings. No one has said it before, no one has ever said it since. This Apostle Paul, who had this experience, this, this world life-changing experience with Christ, he says something that is so outside the bounds of any faith that's ever been, been, been kind of uh, any, any worshiping experience of any God ever, ever thought of or dreamt of. He says, he goes, come here, come here, come here. He says, I can't say this too loud because if it gets out, you know, I'm going to get martyred. Anybody know what happened to Paul? He got martyred. He says, come here, I'm going to tell you something. About this. There's going to be smart guys that are going to come up to you and going to tell you that you need to do certain things. You need to, you need to do, th do this and don't do that. He goes, I want to tell you about the, all these rules. Here's the rule. Here's the story. Don't worry about the rules because there are no rules. You ever hear that in church before? Don't worry about the rules because there are no rules. Now, I know your mommy said, you better be good because God's watching. And I know if you're like me, most of your life that's so drilled and we try to be so good. I know you'd probably say, well, I'm not the best person, but I know I'm a good person. I mean, I know I'm better than some of my friends. And I certainly haven't murdered anybody, right? Like, you know, that's always the ultimate. As long as we haven't murdered anybody, we're okay, right? <laughs> um, but Paul, Paul would say, no, 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 hold on, hold on. I don't think you're getting it. Let me be even more dramatic. Paul's a pretty dramatic guy. It gets you martyred. He goes, come here, come here. He says, I, I need to tell you something. Not only, not only are these rules, there are no rules that, that are getting you to God. The rules are part of the problem. The rules are part of the problem. They actually don't help. They hurt. If you were here... Last year, we talked a little bit about this concept of grace. And if you remember, I showed you a video, and it was a video, a sociological study video of kids put in a room with candy on a table. And they were told, here's this pile of candy. Um, if you don't eat it, if you'll just wait five minutes, I'm going to leave the room. If you just wait five minutes, when I come back, you'll get twice as much candy. Just don't eat the candy. What happens as soon as the sociologist leaves the room? They eat the candy. Have you ever had a kid at home where you said, what, this, somehow my dogs, this doesn't even work with my dogs. I tell them, don't do this. And they, it's like they do. You tell a kid, don't touch a, a hot pot on the stove. What's your kid do? Touches the hot pot on the stove, right? If you actually remember in that video, it was pretty dramatic because at one point there was a study done where a woman came in and there was a, a box uh, with a cat in it 
and they said, hey, whatever you do, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're doing this experiment with the cat, and there's an electricity in this box. And whatever you do, don't push that button, because if you push that button, it's going to give the cat a shock, and we're not sure what will happen to the cat if you do it. The sociologist leaves the room. Anybody remember what the woman does? She pushes the button. There is something in our brokenness, in our humanity, that when somebody tells you not to do it, what does your inside say? Do it. As encompassed by the great American, uh, you know, kind of philosophy of nobody tells me what to do. And Paul's going, oh, quick, 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 quick. all this stuff about the rules, yeah, there's no rules in here. In fact, it's part of the problem. Some of you know that later on Paul writes a letter to the church in Rome because people would get confused by this teaching. He says, well, what should we say then? Are the rules sinful? Are the rules the problem? Well, Paul says, no, 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 certainly not. He goes, here's the deal, though. Nevertheless, is the word he uses. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is right. The law is the heart of God for our lives. He said, but here's the deal. I would have not known what sin was had it not been for the law. I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Listen to St. Paul, church. He says, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the rules, produced in me every kind of coveting. I didn't even know what coveting was until somebody told me not to covet. Suddenly I covet everything. He says, but sin, seizing the opportunity, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. But once I lived apart, once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life in me and I died. I found the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. Now again, the law, the commandments are good. They're holy. The commandments themselves are not the problem. The problem is when the commandments are taught to us as a ways of our means of salvation, then it becomes Jesus plus your best works, Jesus plus how good you are, Jesus compare, and let me see how I compare on the scale of righteousness with, with the guys at the, the office. The law was given so that you and I might understand our inability to keep it, not to use it to get to God. It was meant to push us away from rules and towards Jesus who fulfilled the rules, not to push us to Jesus and I'm going to be a really good person. So what does this mean? This is wild stuff. Have you ever gone to a church where they said, I'm going to be honest with you, it's really not about the rules. Because I know you people, you're just going to go crazy now once you get out of here. <laughs> Nobody wants to tell their kids this, right? So Paul gets practical. He goes, if this is true, he goes, well, so what? What does it mean for how I live? What's the practical value here? Because it, it, there's actually another place in the Bible where Paul says, you realize all things are permissible for me. I mean, not all are beneficial, he says, but all things are permissible for me. And so with all this teaching on faith alone, don't worry about the law, you might think that what Paul is going to say next, which has to do with the way we live, you might think he would say, you know what, you've been set free from the law, go do whatever the heck it is you want. But interestingly enough, that's not what he says. Watch with me, Colossians 3, 1 to 10. He goes, okay, since... Since you don't have to obey and worry about all these rules, since you don't have to worry about worshiping other things, since you don't have to worry about experiences with angels or, or spiritual stuff, he goes, here's the deal. Since you don't have to do, worry about that, since you've been raised with Christ, here's what you now need to do. You need to set your hearts on things above, 
where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You need to set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ. This is the old man, the old part of me, the the sinful, broken part of me. It died, and your life is hidden with Christ when you come to faith. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. He goes on. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God, God hates sin because of what it's doing to his people. The wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all of these things, things like anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language. Listen, stop lying to each other. I love how he puts it. He says, this is so great. He says, since you have taken off your old self with his practices and you have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. What Paul is saying is, look, 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 look. I know everybody told you, you know, if you ask somebody on the Green of Mars, you like Christianity, you believe in Christianity? No, no, why? All the rules. Christianity is not about rules. If, if you start to think it is, you're missing Christianity. This is about your heart and your mind, and where you set your heart and your mind will determine, church, listen, where you set your heart and mind will determine what you wear. What you set your heart and your mind on will determine what you wear. He actually uses the analogy of clothes. He says, where you set your heart and your mind, it'll determine and be evidenced by what you adorn yourself with. Now, this is a powerful truth. Where you set your heart and your mind, it'll determine what you wear. I just got back. Uh, Many of you know, I was on a little uh, four-city tour with Caleb, my third son, and we were doing a college tour, and we went to Texas on uh, last weekend to see a school down there, Um, and then we went to James Madison on Tuesday, and we went to to Virginia Tech on Wednesday, and we went to North Carolina State on Thursday, and so, you know, this is my third kid. I have seen a lot of colleges, and I have been on a lot of college tours. My older kids both transferred, too, so I've actually done this five times. So if you want to know anything about any college in the Northeast, I'm your guy. I could give you the details. But here's what I've learned. If you've been on a couple of these tours, what you start to realize is they're all doing the exact same thing. Every tour guide is telling you the exact, I mean, I don't know if you've been on one of these college tours. The new thing is there's these blue emergency posts everywhere. Every kid goes into a 20-minute dissertation on the blue emergency post. And Caleb is even sitting there going, I could do this tour at this point because I've seen enough of these. They're all the same. And, you know, they bring out their best and the brightest, right? You know, all these kids, they all, you know, they give you the tour. Hi, I'm Jim. Uh, I'm in the College of Engineering. I'm a senior from wherever. I have a 3.7 GPA. I'm part of the Honors College. I'm a varsity athlete, and I have a good-looking girlfriend. And, uh, you know, you just see Caleb going, man, I want to be like that dude, right? Like... Uh, so they, what are they doing? They're trying to get the kids, they're trying to, to get the kids to give them, in a sense, a goal to get their heart and their mind set on that school. You understand that? Now, what do they show you when they go on these tours? Have you been on these tours? Do they stop at a lot of the old classrooms? Here's what I know. Baylor University has the second highest rock climbing wall of any university in the United States of America. <laughs> And they're only five and a half inches short of the highest one. And their goal is, according to this kid, they're they're petitioning to get it raised so they can have the highest rock climbing wall in the United States of America. Right? And uh, where's where's the next place they take you on these tours? 
Okay, but who have you said it? The, com the dining room and the commissary. Let me give you this. I'm on that tour, right? And the girl says, Virginia Tech. She says, our school is rated number one by Princeton Review for the best food on campus. And I said, well, that's interesting. She goes, no, 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 I really mean it. You've got to go check out the food. So we needed something to eat anyway, right? And uh, I said, Caleb, let's go to the dining hall. I can't begin to tell you the experience I had in this dining hall. When I went to Rutgers, we had a tray, and we walked down a steel-like thing, right? And the woman slopped some stuff on your thing, and you did it three times a week. I go into this dining hall. This is no dining hall. The first thing you entered into was like akin to a sports bar, right? Where they had TVs, no exaggeration, there weren't TVs, there were projection like this, all over the walls. And on each table, there was one of those sound boxes, and you could choose which channel you wanted to hear the TV of that was playing, you know, so you could experience what was going on. And everybody that worked in that section of the dining hall had referee outfits on because it was a sports bar thing, right? And you could order anything you wanted in there. Like, they cooked it to whatever you want, hamburgers, hot dogs, nachos, cheesesteaks. It was that theme. And I'm blown away by this, going, this is unbelievable, man. And then I go into, you cross, you go through another room. Now, all of a sudden, no exaggeration, I'm in Italy. There's cobblestone on the ground, uh, no exaggeration, cobblestone on the ground, all these little like uh, chairs that you'd see like on the road in Venice, you know, and in there it's all pasta and pizza and all the rest, anything you want, anything you want. Walk through the next door, I swear to you this is the entire truth, no, not one ounce of exaggeration. I walk through the next door, I'm in like a, a, fifth, a New York style deli, right, with counters and everything that you can eat on, you can order any kind of sandwich, and then the best one was the last one. I walk through the next door, I'm in a high-end steakhouse, <laughs> and they have a, you can order New York strips, ribeyes, uh, like the tables were all fine dining, they had like decorated um, uh, window, what are the window decor type stuff. Again, I swear, no exaggeration, do you know what was behind the counter? It was not the woman that was behind the Rutgers counter when I, when I was there. <laughs> There was a lobster tank where you could pick the lobster you wanted behind the counter, right? And I walked out of there and I said to Caleb, man, my heart and mind is set on things right here. If I was a kid, <laughs> this is where I am going to school, right? Because what do they do? They want you to set your heart and mind on that school because if you do, right, it will change what you wear. Ah, interesting, because something else that they have figured out, which the world knows and you and I forget, where you set your heart and mind is often what it determines what you will wear. And I would say, converse is also true, what you wear will often determine where you set your heart and mind. So at the end of every good college tour, what do you get? You get a t-shirt, baby. Now let me tell you, I've got, here's North Carolina State from this week. Here's a Ryder. Here's a Eastern. Here's uh, Pepperdine, and Joan will tell you I probably left another four or five of them home just because, you know, it would get ridiculous. What they figured out is if I can get this kid to get his heart and his mind set on this place, if he can begins to think about this place, and I put him in our school, you know what else they do? They teach you all the traditions of the school, the Sikkim Bears, the uh, Go Dukes, you know, they teach the kid all about trying to get you to put your heart and your mind on this place and then wear their colors, put their stuff on, clothe yourself in it. It's brilliant. They get it. And it's inverse. How you clothe yourself also often impacts where your heart and mind is. Now, we know this truth. See, you know this truth. It's amazing. It's like, oh, you know, God opened my mind to this. I'll show you. 
The way people clothe themselves often tells you what they're thinking about, where they're going, okay? You see a guy walking down the street in something like this. Where is he going? Okay, he's going to work, right? His clothes show you where his heart and mind is set, right? All right, you see somebody wearing something like this. Now, this morning they yelled losing, so we're not going to do that. <laughs> if I had another one, I would have used a different one, but I've burned all my giant jerseys, so I didn't have that available. But what does this tell you? You see somebody that's walking around in something like this, right? Where is their heart and mind? What does this say? They're likely probably going to an athletic endeavor or something, right? Okay, you see somebody walking around something like this, right? What are they going to do? They're going to bed. They're going to sleep, right? Okay, you see somebody walking around in something like this. Like, <laughs> what are their hearts and minds set on? My wife told me I had to make sure to let, that I left these on so people didn't think it was hers. <laughs> you know this truth. Where you set your heart and minds determines what you clothe yourself in. This has nothing to do with rights and wrongs. This has nothing to do with do's and don'ts. This has to do with hearts, and it has to do with minds. So Paul goes on a laundry list of things that we need to take off. Next, we're going to talk about what we need to put on. But he goes through a laundry list of things that we need to take off. If we set our hearts and our minds on Jesus, which is what they're doing next door in that class, that with God class, how do we commune with God? How do we experience God? How do, how do, we, how do we set our hearts and minds on him? If we do that, certain behaviors will begin to stop. And he goes through a list. You know what some of them are, right? Um, anger and, and jealousy and, and rage. But I, I have to be honest with you this morning. Um, there's one that Paul brings up a lot. And i got to get to this before Christmas because nobody wants to hear this talk at Christmas time. But after this laundry list of anger, rage, filthy language, here and in some other places in Scripture, Paul says there's one issue that we need to take off because it's really important. He says it's sexual immorality and lust. Now again, this is interesting. Because Paul just gave a big speech about this has nothing to do with rules. And laws. In fact, he says the law has only the power to fluff up your desire for sin. And then he says, church, stop being sexually immoral. This isn't about do's and don'ts. This is about hearts and minds and what Paul calls, and we'll talk about it in a minute, sexual immorality. Because what you wear impacts how you think. Because believe it or not, the theological concept of the supremacy of Christ impacts your sex life. That's the truth. <coughs> now, um, can I be honest? I just, listen, I need to be honest. I talk to staff about this sometimes, and, uh, and, and, and we talk about it at the elder level. One thing I think we struggle with as believers more than anything else, and listen, there's no judgment here, man. Please don't see this as judgmental. This is just me kind of just trying to share with you. One, one thing that I see more of with us more than anything else is we are willing to worship God in a lot of ways. Like, we'll give our money and our time. Some of us will quit jobs. Um, we'll go to Guatemala on vacations, and we'll sing in the worship band. And, and it, all kinds of so much serving children's ministry, and I'll evangelize my neighbors. But the one area where everybody that I, I, that everybody, even like people that really, really love God, that they seem so bent on not allowing God to touch is is the sexual areas, the, the intimacy areas. Don't, don't, I mean, right now you're feeling it, right? Don't talk about this. 
I don't want you to talk about this. Isn't it Christmas soon? <laughs> I know, listen, here's, we, it's like the one do not touch area, but what the scriptures seem to say is, no, it actually has to be the one area you really do need to look at. It's different than every other area. I'm going to show you that in a minute. Now, I know what the Bible says about sex, especially if you're, if you're not a believer and you're just here this morning. You might say, dude, you're like the preacher. Of course you think that. You're so behind the times. The Bible was written 2,000 years ago. You can't, you can't possibly think that, that this is realistic in the world we live in. But the deal is, if, 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 after I get done, I think if you're honest with yourself, I think you'll say some of your personal, own personal experiences and some of the, the work that's actually been done by scientists will show you that the Bible actually has got a lot of relevant things to say about this. Now, I'm not a prude. I don't think I'm a prude. I didn't grow up like a, in a real religious house or anything. You know, I went to Rutgers in the 80s. Courtney tells me it's called Slutgers now, so, you know, I mean, I, I, was, I, was, I lived in the real world. See, Wayne's a proud alumnus just like me. Um, I like Rutgers, by the way. No insult to, to the Scarlet Knights. Um, I, I don't think I'm a prude, all right? But I, and I know things have changed. See, when I grew up, the sexual, the, the culture we find ourselves in, all right, is so different and it's impacted all of us. Let me give you an example. When I was a little boy, right, like kind of my sexual morals were first, first laid out for me by uh, uh, Lucy. Um, and uh, Lucy and Ricky, right? Does anybody remember like the sexual intimacy factor of Lucy and Ricky? It looks something like this, if you remember. <laughs> right? Like this was public TV in the 60s, early 60s, I guess, something like that. I don't know how little Ricky sprung from this kind of relationship, but this was what you witnessed. This was what the culture, this was what was culturally acceptable, what the culture kind of propagated as proper sexual behavior. Now, this is silly, right? Like, on the, on the, this is one extreme that's kind of silly, all right? And so then I really, the truth is I was a child of the 70s. And so growing up in the 70s, there was a lot of groundbreaking television shows um, that were really pushing back on social, sociological uh, norms, social norms. And one of those shows was a show, by the way, of a uh, name of Three's Company. Anybody remember Three's Company, right? So in the day, now this wasn't that long ago, Jack Tripper, he moves in with these two girls. And do you remember, he couldn't say that he was just living with these girls. He had to pretend he was gay, right? Because otherwise, he would have been booted out of that apartment complex. There is no way that a man would be allowed to live with two, woman, two women unless, you know, there was not, no hanky-panky going on. So that was, in fact, one line I always remember from this show, and I don't know why, and I, actually, I do know why, and we'll talk about that in a minute. One line I always remember from that show was Jack, when he would go out and uh, he would meet women, he often had a, a standard line, which was he would say to them, and, and I don't mean this callously, so excuse it if it comes across that way. He would say to them, do you believe in premarital sex? Now, when's the last time anybody asked that? That doesn't get asked anymore. Of course you do. So much so that there was a new show that debuted last year on TV. Now, some of you might have seen this. Raise your hand if you know what this show is. Anybody? You won't raise your hand because you're embarrassed anyway. But... This is a show, uh, I think it's on WeTV or one of those channels that you don't know what channel it actually is, like in that lineup of channels. This is a show called Sexbox. And on Sexbox, what they do is they get couples together and they have a counseling session. They have three counselors there and they talk to the couple and they essentially say to the couple, you know what you need to do to, to fix this? 
you need to go spend some time in the box. And uh, they send them into the box, and they wait for them outside, and then they come out and they talk about, you know, how now that this has happened, um, where they go forward in their relationship. Lucy and Ricky, sex box, 50 years. And if you think that has no, had no impact on you or our culture, you're kidding yourself. It's had a dramatic, I can't wait for the sociological studies that are going to come out in a few years. They're going to show what's happened to our children because now they're all, all carrying essentially pornographic devices in their hand all day. See, this is not a list of do's and don'ts. Don't misunderstand that. Do's and don'ts only make you want to do. This is about hearts and minds and clothes. In my study this week, I came across the story of a pastor that was sharing what the Bible says about sex to his youth group. This is what he said. He said, maybe the defining moment for me as I transitioned from working with high school students into working with adults was a conversation I had with a lady. I had done a presentation for several hundred high school kids on the subject, and it was a lady who had just become a Christian and started coming to our church. And so, sometimes adults would come and stand in the back like they do on Sunday night here of our high school ministry because it was fun and it was loud, and, and she had been married. She was in her early 30s. She was very much now into this whole kind of second singles thing, and she was very attractive, and she just sort of was living in that world. But she'd just become a Christian, and she'd started coming to church, and so that, that shortly after that presentation, she tracked me down one day, and she said, I have to ask you a question. And I said, yeah, and she said, it's about the sex thing you talked about the other night. Of course, he said, that's just a weird way to start a conversation. It's about the sex thing, he said. But uh, he, she was sincere, and she said, now, what you said the other night, that's for teenagers, right? And I said, excuse me? And she said, you know, that whole no sex to your married, that's for teenagers, right? And she went on to say that she'd been married, and now she was dating, and she's kind of out in the world, and surely what I said about no sex, that didn't apply to people in her stage of life, did it? She asked sincerely. And he went on to say, so as I do, uh, do often, I'm going, man, God, I need a sound bite on this because I can't give her 20 minutes uh, on this. I need to give her something on it. And so the question came out of my mouth that I've repeated many times since then. I said, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Has sex outside of marriage made your life better or just more complicated? And she almost immediately teared up. And she said, more complicated. And I said, that's why it's not just for teenagers, it's for everybody. That's what's so weird about this subject. It's, it's almost stupid to have to talk about it, right? Because it's like, we know, we know this. I mean, we don't even have to bring the Bible into it, right? Like, we know this. I mean, it's just the American culture, right? We can look and go, uh, is it working? Like, Lucy and Ricky, two, two sex bucks, is this working for us as a culture? I mean, do, do you notice people are a lot happier now? I mean, are, are we better off? Are our kids healthy? Are our families flourishing? How, how, how are we doing spiritually as a country? How are we doing spiritually as, an, as individuals? Uh, are more families staying together? Are more marriages lasting longer? Has it helped the economy? See, we don't have to get to the Bible to talk about this. Like, we know that something, that, there, that there's issues here. You don't need me to tell you that. 
your family, your soul, your brain, your relationships, you know they get more complicated when we take this incredible gift of sex that God created and God is a fan of, and we rip it out of the context that it was designed for, and we put it out there, and it just becomes kind of random, and, and it's, it's, you know, you just got to go with your feelings, go with your heart, it's just sex, Kids will be kids. Uh, boys will be boys. If I don't, she might think I'm weird. If I don't, he might leave me. Uh, you know, I'm not hurting anybody else. What does it matter what I look at in my own free time? Let me ask you a question. Is it making your life any better? Or is it making your life more complicated? Because most of us, if we're honest, in our experiences with this, sex outside of the bounds of God's purpose and will, over the long term of your life, Almost all of you would say that it was a net negative, not a net positive. In fact, it was a study done. Dina, put this quote up. This is fascinating. You can go home and check this out. This is not just the old 2,000-year-old Bible talking to you. This was done by the independent um, newspaper. It's, it's a, uh, an English newspaper. This is a liberal newspaper. This was the title of their article. Religion and science don't normally make, or the, the first paragraph, make for happy bedfellows, especially when it comes to sex. But now it seems they're in total agreement. A study into the effects of having sex before marriage suggests it's much better not to. This is not a magazine that is a pro-family magazine. And there's two different studies in there that go on to talk about what this does to our, to our intimacy factors and our ability to relate long-term in healthy relationships. There's something different about sex. Paul talks about it. But you know, man, for some of us, it's, it's, it's been a negative in our, in our lives. Uh, there's something that's part of our psyche. It's part of our soul. It's gotten down in, you know, maybe you're the guy that walks down the concourse of the airports, right? And you travel a lot for business. And you can't, you're just wrestling with it, right? Like, it, it, it's, it's always there. You get to the hotel. You struggle with what you're going to put on your computer. I met with a guy uh, very recently. He said to me, can I tell you something about this? He said, my, my boss told me 20 years ago that when he sees uh, a woman, he immediately thinks, would he be willing to have sex with that woman or not? And he goes, he told me that 20 years ago, and I can't get it out of my head every time I walk through an airport. That's all I think. And you know, I had a guy after the first service said, great, thanks. <laughs> so then I felt a little bit guilty. But see... You don't remember gossip from 20 years ago. You remember that. There's something about this that's powerful. It's difficult. It's distracting. In some ways, you hate, some of you hate what it's done to you. You hate the way it's filled your mind. You don't like it. You know it's not working. You get trapped into it. You get addicted to it. The computer at night, the private chats, the, 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 um, the untraceable uh, windows, you know how it goes. Some of, some of you guys, and, and this is probably a lot of you guys, were so sexually active before you got married, and you, you, you brought all that into your relationship, and maybe you were sexually active even with your spouse before you got married. And I know, I talked to so many folks that just, after some amount of time, everything was so great sexually and intimately, but then three months, six months, nine months into the marriage, a year or two into the marriage, something just turns off. Something different about sex. So from Lucy and Ricky to Sexbox, it's like the culture has gone mad, and it's all been driven by trying to entice you to watch a show to get money. You've been lied to. You almost wonder if, as, as a people, we could just kind of say, whoa, 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 whoa. We're not buying it anymore. 
It's a lie. I, I understand what it did to me and to my kids and to my family. And hey, We're not going to do it this way anymore. The way we approach sex, the way we market it, the way we use it to advertise, the way it's on every music video. Joan and I watched TV the other night. And no matter what show we turned on, it had a sexual reference to it. No matter what show. This is not about being approved. This is about understanding what it's doing to your soul. It's about hearts and minds, not about laws and do's and don'ts. You're not better off. I'm not better off. I mean, you know, I was 18, my mind, my mind thought in a much different way, and now I have kids and my mind thinks in a much different way. We bought a lie and we paid the price for it. Some of us, some, for some of us, you know, things that we did when we were 18 and 19 and 20 years old, we're still carrying around with us. Maybe you're single, you're into the whole, like, dating thing and all the stuff that goes with that in our culture and and the statistics on this, I know, are mind-blowing about, about that. But, I mean, might, right now you might be going, hey, you know, this is working right now. And, uh, you know, I don't know what you're talking about, man. You know, I, I just, it's no problem. You know, we love each other. All I'm telling you is uh, that, that the Bible and social psychologists would tell you it's not just sex. That something is coming later on. This is something. You are doing something to yourself. You are doing something to that other person that is going to rear its head later in your life. Not because God is going to make it rear its head. It's because God, the author and the creator of you, is saying, this is going to hurt you. Don't do this. Listen, if you go back to, um, like if you were God, and you watch this all playing out over millennia, what, what sexual immorality, what sex outside of the bounds of marriage is, and you saw what it was doing to people. You saw what it was doing to men and to women. You saw what it was doing to, to, to children in Africa. You saw what it, it was doing with child abuse. You saw about the million orphans because of, of AIDS. What would you say about this? Well, just, you know, make sure you practice it safely. So you would see it differently. Look, if you were going to go back and pick the newspapers up over the last couple of years, you would go back over every big story. 90% of these stories have something to do with the brokenness of our sexual nature. From the teacher at West Mars, Mendham, that was in the paper two days ago, to you could go down a line to, to, to Jerry Sandusky in Penn State, to um, I just saw a dentist two days ago that was, you know, it's just never ends. It doesn't matter. Something about sex, it doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, smart, it doesn't matter. It does something to us. So if you were God and you saw all that, what would you say? I mean, if you, he, you were able to see into the souls and the hearts and the struggles with intimacy that so many people bring into their marriage because of it. They carry around the I wish I hadn't and the ghosts that follow folks around for, because of their past and their addictions. It, it, maybe you were abused as a child and so many, so many people have been sexually abused as children and you're trying to do the intimacy thing as an adult now and you can't get past that. It's not your sin that's in, it's hurting you. It's the sin of somebody else that somebody put on you and that's hurting you. If you were God, you saw it all the time around the world, the misapplication of sexual intimacy, what it's caused, the brokenness, the pain, and the sorrow of death. What would you say? Oh, it's not hurting anybody. It's just between me and him. What would you say? See, it's bigger than just that. It's more powerful than just that. It's not that simple. It's profound. It's not a matter of do's and don'ts, but hearts and minds. There's something so powerful here. See, here's what I, 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 I would love to have done this, but I, that it wouldn't have worked. But if I gave you all a sheet of paper and said, write down three regrets you have from your life. And don't tell me you have no regrets. Everybody's got some regrets. Write down three regrets. I guarantee that the vast majority of you would have one of your regrets as something sexual. It wouldn't be that I gossiped. 
It wouldn't be that I cursed. It wouldn't be that I got angry. It would be that I wish I hadn't with him, with her, back then. Wish I could take it back. Wish it hadn't happened. And here's what I also guarantee that none of you would have written on that page. I wish I could have had more sex with more people. Because there's something different about this. Because where you set your heart and your mind, it determines the clothes you put on. And Paul says, you got to take this off. In a letter Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he said this about sexual immorality, which, listen, this is the Bible's description of sexual immorality is sex outside of the bounds of marriage. I know you might be going, well, it's not, this isn't moral, man. This is just me and him, and I love him, or just me and her, and I love her. Man, it's just me and my computer, and nobody knows I'm doing it. All I'm telling you is that sexual immorality is defined by the scriptures. It's contained within the bounds of a man and a woman in marriage. And Paul says, listen, when, it gets, when intimacy gets outside of that, here's what you need to do. He's, he's right into this church. It's all caught up in us. He goes, how do I tell them? What, what do I do? I tell them to, to fight it? Do I tell them to stand against it? You know what he told them? Flee. It's so powerful. It's going to do so much damage to you. It's not worth the t- time to sit there and fight it. Run from it. Get away from it. Flee sexual immorality. Oh, you know, John, it's not, it's not immoral. I just have this girlfriend on the side. And, you know, I really love my wife and my kids. But this girl, you know, she, she, she understands things. It's like a, it's a special thing. And I don't want to break up my marriage. It would hurt my kids. So this isn't immoral, right? I mean, I agree we should flee from the immoral, immorality issue. But, but this isn't immoral. I mean, it could go on and on. I mean, we can all come up with these different things. But this is what the scripture says. It says you've got to get away from this. It's a big issue. Don't take a stand on it. Run away from it. Here's why. He says, because this is different. He says this issue of sexual morality, this issue of having sex outside the bounds of, 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 of marriage, he goes, hey, this is crazy. He goes, here's the deal. He goes, this is why. Because all other sins, what other, what, how many other sins? What kind of sins? All other sins? are different. He says all the other ones are different. This is unique. It's exclusive, church. This is not about do's and don'ts. This is not about rights and wrongs. This is about hearts and minds. It's not that God goes ballistic over sexual sin versus other sin. That's not the point he's about to make. The reason he categorizes sexual sin as different is not because of God's response to sexual sin. It's yours. It's the way you react because sexual sin takes a toll on human beings in a way that no other sin does. We know this, right? Because a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, they could be sexually molested. And when, when, when that person is 47 or 48 years old, they're still carrying it. And in her, her case, it wasn't even a sin. It was somebody else's sin. But yet she's still being impacted by it because sexual sin is different. The consequences are different. He goes on, he says, here's the deal. Don't you get this, church? He says, your bodies are members of Christ itself. And he says, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them? What does he mean by unite them? He means fasten them to, glue them to, permanently attach them to another? you got to imagine Paul's audience, and he's sitting there, maybe just like you are, going, whoa, 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 whoa. There's nothing permanent about that. There's nothing permanent about this. Yeah, I had a little too much to drink. I lack for intimacy. We're really not into each other. We're not really dating, but it's just kind of a thing on the side we do. I want it to be permanent, but maybe it's not going to be. But I feel like if I don't, then he might not. And Paul goes, listen, listen, listen. 
He goes, you thought this was just an activity. This is something that you could just do. It was an event. It was a pastime. Paul says, it's not a pastime. It's a pathway into your soul. When you have sex with someone, the Bible says, and sociologists, these articles will tell you this is exactly what they're talking about. It messes up your intimacy factor. When you have sex with someone, when you unite with them, when you fasten yourself to them, when you glue yourself to them, when you become one with them, when you separate, you take part of them and they take part of you because there is something, I don't understand it, nobody can fully explain it, but there is something about this that is different than every other thing. You take part of them and they take part of you with them. And this is the reason, this is the reason why, for some of us, we could get together and we could laugh about some of the things we've done in the past, some of our brokenness and some of, you know, some of the silly things we've done in our sin, but you'll never hear anybody cracking a joke about this because we know it's not funny. Paul's going, wait a minute, nobody told you? See, sex isn't just a physical thing. It's a soul thing. It's a heart and mind thing. Where you set your heart and mind, that's going to determine what you close yourself with. It's about intimacy. When you take sex out of that concept that God designed it for, you're fouling up your intimacy factor. You're going to limit your ability. You're going to marginalize your ability to be intimate going forward. That's why, again, just in that example, I mean, if you ever had a sexual crime committed against you, and I've, I've had folks come into my office that have said, I, I was date raped, and this is messing up my marriage. If you were abused as a child, it has nothing to do with you. It was somebody else's sin, but we still struggle in the realm of intimacy because there's something about intimacy. Sex outside the bounds of marriage is not an isolated event. It has profound impact, and that's why Paul says, run like hell. This is how he concludes. This is not my, this is the Bible. And it's what social psychologists, I think, would agree with. Flee from this. Here's why. All other sins you commit are outside of your body. But he who sins sexually, he who sins sexually, he who sins sexually, sins against his own body. You're going to hurt yourself. This is not just about sex. You're hurting yourself you're hurting somebody else. You're choosing to do something that I, as your creator, I, as your father in heaven who loves you, I know that this is going to hurt you. You might go, man, I didn't hurt myself. I got out of there scot-free. I changed my number. She never heard from me again. There's no way she'll ever be able to find me. Nobody's sick. Nobody died. Nobody's pregnant. I'm fine. I'm free. I'm clear. I think Paul would say, you're not getting it. You don't yet. You don't now. You will, maybe later. But, you know, go spend some time talking with people like I do. I mean, kids, I know it's hard for you to talk to your parents about this, but maybe go talk to somebody else about it and say, hey, tell me about this issue in your life. Was it a net negative or a net positive? If you could do it over again, what were your regrets? So this morning... What's your mind set on? What's your heart set on? What have you clothed yourself in? Because what you, what you clothe yourself in will often impact where your mind and your heart are. I would throw a couple things out to you just in closing here. Um, the first is, uh, 
you know, when Joan and I were dating and we, we got serious about our faith, we had a conversation about this. Awkward. <laughs> Especially since my daughter's sitting over there. We had a conversation about this. How, what's this mean for our relationship? How are we going to go forward? If you're dating, you should have that conversation. Men, you should lead that conversation. Right? Called to lead your wife towards Christ. You're not called to lead a bunch of women. You're not called to leave your calling card with a bunch of women. Women. If you're the believer, if you're the one that loves Christ, in this most profound of areas, you're not leading this guy you want towards Christ. You are leading him away from Christ. Men and women, if you want your relationship to be blessed by God, don't, don't, don't play around in a relationship that he's already told you he's not going to bless. Not because he's against sex, not because he's against you, but because he hates what it's going to do to you. Ben, come on up. I want to close with this. This is a heart and mind issue. I had a letter a while back from someone in the church. One of the best letters I ever got in my life. Um, it was a single person, beautiful woman. And uh, they had been dating someone. And uh, I I'd, I'd talked to her in the hall and said, hey, how's that relationship going? And uh, <laughs> she said, it's complicated. I'll email you. So this was the email she sent me. And I asked her if I could share it one day. And I, obviously, I'm not going to share details on her who it was. But, but she actually says in here, I hope this will help somebody. Hi, Pastor John. It was nice talking to you Sunday. Um, I brought a friend. They really like the energy and plan on coming back with me more often. I want to follow up about um, that guy you asked me about. Unfortunately, we're no longer together. Ultimately, it was our different religious views that ended things. I think, it's got to, I think it got to be too much pressure because I told him I couldn't walk down the aisle with him unless we had the same beliefs. I know he was trying, and I really had faith that he was on his way. But he just snapped one day and ended it, saying that my family and, and I would never accept him for who he was. I was completely surprised. That was never my intention. But, but I also knew I couldn't make an oath to God and feel as if it were blessed if we weren't on the same page. As sad as it, it was, in my heart I knew it was for the best, whether we ended up together or not. I hope in my efforts to bring him closer to God, I didn't push him away further. This happened a week before the baptism. I was taking things pretty hard at first, but getting into that water brought a feeling of peace like I have never experienced. Set your hearts and your minds on things above. I had these feelings of guilt for much of my adult life, and I knew I was living in sin. I really felt like they were washed away, and I could really start fresh and renew my faith with a clean slate. Since then, amazing things have happened to me. For the first time in my life, I feel like I am really experiencing God and his grace. One of the best lines anybody's ever written to me is this. I'm working on building my relationship with him before I worry about meeting somebody else. Oof. Set your heart and your minds on things above. I have faith that God has the right person for me once I'm ready. I'd love to talk more about this with you and how I can strengthen my relationship with God and influence others positively. This is not about do's and don'ts. This is about hearts and minds. And this is about what we clothe ourselves in.
Let's stand up and worship God.